Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, and we have rebelled against Him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your, your voice, and the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. He has confirmed His words, which He spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, our, O our God, Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, as we dive into the first half of this pivotal chapter when it comes to prophecy, and if you don't know this, you will by the end of hopefully the next couple of weeks. If you have not been a part of our studies of Revelation and Ezekiel, you can't do end-time prophecy study without coming to Daniel chapter 9. It is a key, central cog, if you will, in the study of the end times, and it is where God gives us the timetable for what his plan is for the nation of Israel and while we, how we know that the coming tribulation period is only going to be seven years long. We'll get into all that next week. But what we're going to do is we're only going to deal with the setup to the prophecy that's coming in the next verses next week. 
Now, we've been talking about the importance of sharing with others things that are not going to happen in our lifetime, but will happen in other people's lifetime. You remember how we've been looking at the prophets. Aren't we glad that they shared what God had shown them, even though it wasn't going to happen in their lifetime? And we've talked about how we in the church aren't going to be here during the tribulation period, but we've been given a responsibility to let people know these things are going to happen. They are going to come. Now, this chapter deals with, as you're going to see, specific prophecies about future dates and times. And Daniel began to get the prophecy from Gabriel, which we're going to get to next week. He got that from Gabriel because he took God's word literally and seriously. He, he's about to be visited by the angel Gabriel again. And Gabriel's going to come and give him the prophecy of the 77s that we're going to get into next week. But the reason the conversation with Gabriel began is told right here in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Look closely. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by his ascent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seven the years. Now, we're going to come back to this and the fact that he took the scripture literally and there were 70 years prophesied for Israel to be in captivity in Babylon and all these things. We're going to come back to that tonight. We're going to deal with that. But there's something that I've been wanting to, I've kind of prayerfully been saying, Lord, where do I squeeze it in? Where do I, where do I take something here in Daniel that we've already passed but tie it into where we're going. And I think God says this is the place to do it. We, we're going to, like I said, going to come back to the 70-year prophecy of Jeremiah that he just mentioned. But this is a good time to show you that because Daniel believed God's word to be true, and because he believed that what was prophesied would literally happen, there's strong evidence in Scripture that the wise men, the Magi, remember the guys that came to visit Jesus at his birth? That they came to visit Jesus because of Daniel's teaching and influence in this area of the world. Go to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and look at verses 1 and 2. We're going to chase a rabbit real quick, but it's a rabbit you can catch, and it's going to taste good. There's strong biblical evidence that the reason why the wise men came to visit Jesus, or one of the reasons why they came to visit Jesus at his birth, can be tied to Daniel. Go to Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, where'd they come from? From the east, came to Jerusalem saying, and if you remember from our study of Matthew, they were asking this in the city over and over, asking everybody, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, word gets to Herod, as you know, and then the story, they get taken over to Herod and they begin the whole conversation there and all that happens. But listen, wise men came from the east and we're in Jerusalem asking, where's the king who's been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star rise in the east, and we've come to worship him. Well, how did these wise men from the east know that there was going to be a king born to Israel who's going to be the king of the Jews? And why, even if they believed that there was going to be a king born to be king of the Jews, did they travel all of those miles from the east to come worship him? I think the Bible actually hints at the fact that you can trace it all the way back to Daniel and his teaching. Go to Numbers chapter 24. They, these wise men knew the prophecies of a star coming out of Israel. 
announcing the birth of a coming king. Go to Numbers chapter 24, verses 15 through 19. Now, this is in the story of Balaam and Balak trying to get him to curse Israel. And every time he does prophecy and blessings come out of his mouth. And in one of these times that Balaam is taken over by the Spirit of God and he starts prophesying, he says something very interesting in chapter 24, verses 15 through uh, 19. Look at Balaam's final oracle. And he took up his discourse and he said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel's doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. So here's a prophecy that God gave through Balaam many years prior. And I believe without question that Daniel, who knew the Old Testament prophecies, taught them to the wise men in Babylon and also in the country of the Medes and the Persians when they took over. If you remember, go with me back to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel was made head of all of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel chapter 2, look at verses 46 through 48. In Daniel 2, starting in verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over who? Over all the wise men of Babylon. Jump over to chapter 5 and look at verse 11. Daniel chapter 5, verse 11. It says, the queen speaking to Belshazzar in the night that he's going to be killed. He says, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your predecessor, the king made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and what? Astrologers. So verse 11 tells us he was head out over all the wise men, which is made up of the Chaldeans and the, the uh, uh, as you see here, the enchanters and the magicians and also the astrologers, the guys who studied the stars. And Daniel, I believe without question, took his opportunity of these guys who were studying the stars and said, you guys want to see a star? Let me show you a prophecy. And I believe without question, he took them because you do hopefully understand this about Daniel. If you don't, I'm going to show you from Scripture. He wasn't afraid to tell people what he thought about God's Word. He was bold for the Word of God. He stood on the Word of God, even if it meant he was to be killed. He, from the moment he stepped foot into Babylon, was more interested in obeying God and His Word than he was pleasing the people around him. Do you remember what happened in Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 20? We're not going to take the time to turn there, but when Daniel was taken captive as a young boy, remember, he got there and they saw something in him, and so they're going to make him some of the wise young men who are going to be trained in their stuff. 
And he said, I tell you what, I don't want to defile myself with the king's food. Why don't you put us to the test? And if you remember from our study of Daniel 1, he took a chance and he was bold. Even as a young boy, I would rather obey God than not. But go to Daniel 6. Look at verses 1 through 5. Again, passages we've already studied, but hopefully it'll help you remember some things that have been said about him. In Daniel 6, verses 1 through 5, it says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should, be, should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they couldn't find, find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it concerned in connection with the law of his God. What was Daniel known for being fully obedient to? The law of God. If Daniel from day one was bold about the law of God and the word of God, and he was known for being devoted to the law of God, and as you're going to see, as we touched earlier, and he's going to be praying again today, he prayed three times daily. <clears throat> if Daniel was known to be this bold about the law of God, and now he's in charge of all of the wise men, what do you think he's going to be teaching them? Their curriculum? No, he's going to be teaching them the law of God. And the word of God. And interestingly enough, even after the time period goes and Daniel dies and the nation of Israel moves back into the land and all this stuff. Years later, hundreds of years later. The teaching of Daniel, I believe, without question, had made its way to the point that these wise men still remembered. And it had been passed on to them. And they show up and said, we've seen his star and we've come to worship him. Now. There's no question that as Daniel grew in favor with all these wise men that he would not share with them about Israel's coming king. You want further proof? It's been here subconsciously that you haven't seen because this is in English. What were chapters 2 through 7 written in? Aramaic. Let that sink in for a minute. Chapters 2 through 7 of the book that he writes were written in their language so that they would know who this God is and the coming king. Who's introduced in chapter 7? You remember the one who came on the clouds of heaven and was presented before the Ancient of Days and the kingdom was given to him? Do you remember that? That was written in Aramaic. Daniel was very, very bold about sharing the coming, about the news about the coming Messiah, the coming king in Israel that had been prophesied. And I believe without question, that rabbit that we've just chased is that you can trace Daniel to the wise men coming to, to Bethlehem and, and, and Jerusalem. Isn't that cool? Hey, by the way, you don't know. You have no idea what kind of influence you're going to have. Hang on one second, Rick. You have no idea what kind of influence you may have on somebody. Something you may share, something you may say, somehow that you may live. People are watching, and even though you may not think it. Even though, oh, I've wasted my breath. With that. You don't know. You don't know. Go ahead, Rick. Exactly. The Spirit of God had taken the words of Daniel and passed them on through all these guys, and it had gotten to them, and they believed it. The king. 
They were looking for the king. And they lived in a land with kings. Now Daniel's been praying three times a day for a while. Look at Daniel 6, verse 10. Remind you of that. Daniel 6, verse 10. In Daniel 6, verse 10, it says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So he pretty regularly prays three times a day toward Jerusalem. We've already studied how 1 Kings 8 tells us that Solomon taught that they were to do that. They were taken captive because of their sin, that they were to pray toward Jerusalem and seek God for the temple. But this day, this year, Daniel gets very specific in his prayer because he realizes that it's getting close to the 70-year prophecy of Jeremiah about the length of their Babylonian captivity since the Medes and the Persians are in power now. Remember, as you're about to see, the prophecy said that 70 years were decreed for Jerusalem and for Babylon. According to Daniel chapter 9, who's in charge now? The Medes and the Persians, the Chaldeans are in, in charge now. And so now that the Chaldeans are in charge and Babylon is no longer the major player, Daniel, who knows the word of God, who believes the word of God, who takes the scripture literally, starts doing the math. And he says, we're getting close to 70 years. I've been praying three times a day, but here's what I'm going to pray about now. I'm going to start praying about, okay, God, we're getting close to you fulfilling what you said would happen. How's this going back to Jerusalem going to happen? We're no longer under Babylon's power. Israel had not let the land. Well, actually, I mean, the prophesied 70-year captivity in Babylon is just about to be done, as I've just touched on. And Israel had not let the land rest every seven years like God had said to. They didn't trust him to provide for them. So God kept track of how many Sabbath years it had been ignored, 70 of them. And he took them out of the land for a promised 70 years, just like he said he would. Now, I'll explain this to you from the scripture. Let me kind of set the stage to help you understand what we're about to read. When God sent, out, sent his law, he told him, he's, look, I want you guys to plant every six years, plant every year for six years. On the seventh year, I don't want you to plant. And trust me, the land from the scraps will provide enough for you to live off of. If you know anything about uh, agriculture, those of you that have any farming background, you rotate crops, you give land a rest, because if you just keep planting the same thing over and over, pretty soon your crops get smaller and smaller. But you know what? God knew all this stuff. But he was also teaching them not how to take care of the land, but he was also teaching them about trusting him, just like in the tithe and those types of things. It's a teaching about trusting his provision. But the nation of Israel didn't do it. Go to Leviticus 25. Go to Leviticus 25. Look at verses 1 through 7. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest, or gather the grapes of your undressed vine, it shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, you, for yourself and your male and your female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. You don't have to work it. <coughs> Excuse me. You don't have to work the land, he says. It'll take care of you. 
Go to Leviticus 26. Look at verses 33 through 45. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 33. And God says, And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and shall have rest. The land that it did not have on your, sorry, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I'll send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight and they shall flee as one flees from the sword and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword though no one pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of the iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of the fa their fathers they shall rot away uh, like them. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I'll remember my covenant with Jacob and I'll remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I'll remember what? The land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Now, it's interesting. God in chapter 25 of Leviticus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to every seven years give the land a rest. And live off of what the land produces by itself. And trust me to take care of you. But then when he gets to chapter 26, he says, you're not going to do it. And I'm going to take you captive. Does God know his kids or what? And so he says, I'm going to give it rest for every year that you didn't give it rest. Let me point something out to you. We've already touched on this in previous study. Didn't we already take a look at the fact that God's keeping track of every little thing? There isn't anything that the wicked are doing that God doesn't already know. He's keeping track of it. You don't have to worry about whether or not God's paying attention or whether or not they're going to get paid back. God knows. And oh, by the way, he's keeping track of our reward as well. The moment you start pointing it out to him, you lose your points. Just ask me and my wife. All right. The moment I start pointing it out to Becky, I lose my points. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Look at verses 17 through 21. Second Chronicles 36, verse 17. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on the young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and of his princes, and all these he brought to Babylon, 
And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Did you catch that? To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So here at the end of the Chronicles, it says God took him to captivity into Babylon until when? Who came into power? Persia. Why? To fulfill the prophecy from Jeremiah that the land was going to lay desolate for all of the years that it was supposed to have laid desolate that they've ignored, which added up to how many years? 70. Go to Jeremiah 25. Let's go see what Jeremiah says about it. Go to Jeremiah 25, verses 9 through 14. Look at verses 9 through 14 of Jeremiah 25. God speaking through Jeremiah, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I'll bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. How many years? Seventy years. Then after seventy years are completed... I'll punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land, verse 13, I'll bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them and recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So here God says, I'm not only going to be dealing with the fact that you haven't given the land to rest for 70 years, I'm also going to deal with Babylon. They're going to prosper for 70 years during this time, but when that time period's over, I'm going to hold them accountable for all the stuff they did to you. Go to Jeremiah 29. Look at verses 10 and 11. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Isn't that interesting? That passage we all love to quote, it's tied to the 70 years of captivity. So Daniel He's studying the Bible. He knows the word of God. He knows Leviticus 25 and the regulations for the Sabbath, which weren't kept. He knows what God said in chapter 26 of Leviticus, that he was going to take them captive and out of their land for the whole time period that that they were going to be, uh, they hadn't given the land the rest. And he knows that, as we read in chapter 26, that God says, but if while you're in captivity, you change your heart and you start praying and seek my face and confess your sin, I'll hear and I'll bring you back. And didn't Leviticus 26, that section about if you remember and pray, didn't it sound almost word for word like Daniel's prayer? 
He was praying almost the same pattern of what God had told him to pray in Leviticus 26. He knew that the Second Chronicles talked about the fact that they were going to be in captivity for 70 years because of the years that God had prophesied through Jeremiah. He knew Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 25 and chapter 29 that it was going to be 70 years. And at this point in the history of Babylon and Persia, Daniel realizes we're about 67, 68 years into the, the prophecy. It's around 67, 68 years now. And Babylon's not in power anymore. And Persia's now started to take over. God, you said 70 years. And I believe you mean it. So I think we're heading back. Oh, as you're going to see later on, we have time. They do end up going back 70 years later. It takes a couple of years, and then you have the decree from uh, Cyrus and others. That they can go back and start rebuilding, and it takes a little while for everybody to regroup. And it ends up being 70 years between when they left, were taken in 605, and when they actually went back and began to rebuild the walls and the temple and all that stuff. But it all came about in Daniel's prayer that is about to be answered by the angel Gabriel that has become a cog in a Big blessing to all of us who have come after him to understand how God works. And I can't wait to show you the math and how it all works out next week. All of that comes about because Daniel knew the word of God, took it seriously, took it literally, and began praying for God to do what he said he would do. Folks, I'm going to say something to you. I think many of us miss out on seeing God do amazing things in our lives because we really don't believe God's word. Actually, in Matthew 22, I think it is, uh, Jesus is confronted about the, the, from the Pharisees about this guy that had seven wives and who, you know, they all died in, in the resurrection because the Sadducees, sorry, didn't believe there was a resurrection. Whose wife will she be? And Jesus makes an inter interesting statement. He says, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. I'm just going to say something to you, folks. Does the Bible not say that blessed is the man and woman who meditates on God's law day and night? Everything he does prospers. His leaf will, not, leaf will not wither. It'll produce its fruit in its season. It's not saying you'll never have struggles or strife, but the Lord will walk you through them and you'll see his power and his provision and his blessing. Doesn't God's word say, for those who take my word seriously and spend time in it every day and meditate on it throughout the day and believe it and live it, that he will bless? You didn't sound like you believed it. Doesn't the Bible say that? You better say yes, because otherwise I'll show you all the scriptures that talk about that, and I don't think you want that. <laughs> here's, the, here's the next thing, though. Do you really believe it? See, because it's one thing to say you believe it. It's another thing to actually do it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that he's good. And then he says... Those who fear the Lord have no lack. Oh, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who fear the Lord suffer uh, lack no good thing. Listen closely, then what is that he says next? He says, let me teach you the fear of the Lord. Obey his word. Know his word says, and believe it. I'm just going to throw something else out to you as we start moving into Daniel's prayer tonight. Let me say this to you as well. If you don't know the word of God, you're going to have it rough in the days that are coming. Because the world's freaking out, and they're going to freak out more and more and more to the point that they're all going to start clamoring for a one-world government, one-world leader, all the things that the Bible said was going to happen. And let me just say something to you folks. 
it will help you if you believe that God said these things are going to happen, but I've got you. That's what's going to get us through it. But you've got to know what he's promised. You've got to know what he said. Otherwise, you're going to be reading the newspaper and freaking out about what's going on in the newspaper. Some of you probably need to turn off your news feeds for a while and go spend some time back in the Word of God. And then maybe when you're ready and he knows you're ready, you can go back and look at the news again. And then you'll look, read the news and interpret the news through the filter of the Word of God. That's why the Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 10, verse, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, that we take every thought captive and make it obedient. Christ. Folks, you got to believe and know the Word of God and know what's coming. And oh, by the way, we're going to deal with that next week because Gabriel comes and says, I heard your prayer and I've got a very specific answer that's going to be for you and the Jews and the world needs to hear it. So, as we said earlier in our study, Daniel's praying Towards Jerusalem was in obedience to Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8. We're not going to go there right now, but in 1 Kings 8, 27 through 30, if you want to go there, 1 Kings 8, 27 through 30, and, uh, and then verses 46 through 53. Now, as we wrap up tonight, and when I say wrap up, we, we're, we're going to take a little bit of time in this here. I want to contrast for us the difference between Daniel's prayer here and the prayer prayed by Elijah many years earlier. There's something to be learned here, and there's something going on in the church right now that I really feel like God wants me to deal with. And so stick with me here. Let's look again at Daniel's prayer in chapter 3. Sorry, Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 through 19. Daniel 9, verses 3 through 19. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, I'm going to go slowly here, and I want you to mark your Bibles if you're okay with it. That next word you need to circle or underline. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. That next one again. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to, what's that next word? Us, open shame. Now, before I go any further, we got to stop. <clears throat> You've been studying the book of Daniel with me. We started in February, I think it was. Has anybody seen Daniel sin yet? I mean, Daniel's praying three times a day to God. He's known for his devotion to the Lord. He wouldn't defile himself with the king's food. Can anybody show me Daniel's sin? Yet Daniel is praying in sackcloth and ashes. He's not leading a group of people. He's in his room by himself. And he's saying, Lord, we did it. We've done it. Keep reading. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. And to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. 
To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Now, we've got to stop here and put a bookmark in Daniel 9. Go back to that passage I was telling you about in 1 Kings 8. We're not going to read the whole section, but I want to... Remember how I told you how he was doing what Solomon had prayed at the dedication of the temple? Go to 1 Kings chapter 8. We'll start in verse 46. If they sin against you, what's the next part? For there is no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they're carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned, there's the we again, and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind, with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen into the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. If they sin against you, Solomon says, and there's no one who doesn't sin. Daniel took all of the scripture seriously. He didn't pick and choose. If the scripture said that they're going to go into captivity because of sin, it's everybody's sin. We have a tendency sometimes to ignore our sin. I think it's not that big of a deal. Sometimes I think we're only really concerned with our sin when Others find out about it. By the way, if you ever do a study of Saul, King Saul, when he sinned and God said through the prophet Samuel to him, he's removed the kingdom from you now. Saul said, come with me and worship before the people. And Samuel said, no. Saul fell down, fell down on his knees and begged him and ripped his robe and said, please, please, please. In other words, Make me look good in front of the people. But when David sinned in Psalm 51, the next king, he said, against you and you only have I sinned. And I'm not worried about whether or not anybody sees or knows. My confession is real, and I don't care if people find out. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I think something that's happened to the church is over the years, you ever heard the phrase, holier than thou? You know, Christians are known for being better than everyone else. The Bible's real clear that there's no one righteous, no, not one. 
The Bible says, if you're able to keep the whole law, James chapter 2, verse 10, and yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty in the eyes of God as if you broke it all. Jesus made an interesting statement. I just said to you in James chapter 2, verse 10, that if you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. Yet, Jesus, when he had this woman come and wipe his feet with her, with her, with her hair and wash his feet with her tears... And the prophet there at that house said, if this guy really weren't a prophet, I'm sorry, the, the, the Pharisee would said, if this guy, really, Jesus, really were a prophet, he'd know what kind of a woman was touching him. And Jesus said, let me ask you a question. He said, there are two people who were forgiven a debt. One was forgiven a big debt. One was forgiven a little debt. Uh, who will love the person that forgave him more? The one forgiven a lot or a little? And he said, well, of course, the one who was forgiven a lot. He said, you're right. Those who have been forgiven much love much. And those who have been forgiven little love little. Isn't that interesting? Didn't James 2.10 say that even if I keep all of God's law, yet stumble at just one point, I'm guilty in the eyes of God as if I broke it all? Is there really anyone in the eyes of God that's, God's, eyes of God that's sinned more than others? No, Jesus' death was for all sin. Well, guess what? What was Jesus saying then? He said, those that think they've been forgiven little, love little. Those who realize they've been forgiven much, love much. And Daniel's prayer is not, God, I'm amongst the people that are sinners. Lord, I've been serving you faithfully. I've been living for you in Babylon. I hope you're paying attention because I have been blessed by you because of my faithfulness to you. I've risen up the ranks. I have I have been used by you powerfully. But Lord, we got a group of people here that are pretty comfortable in Babylon and they're not even going to want to go back when it's time. And Lord, I'm, I'm seeing some heart attitudes around me that I don't like. And Lord, if only more people were like me. He doesn't pray that way, does he? He said, we've sinned. All Israel has sinned. Folks, I want to challenge you. I heard a lot of Christians today talking about how America's going to hell. And we're talking like we're better. We're just as guilty. But God in his mercy, we've received it. It's offered to them too, and he loves them just as much as he loves us. He doesn't love Christians more than he loves lost people, folks. He loves us all the same. And the world needs to know, look, there's really no difference in your sin and my sin, except our mind's forgiven. I've received the forgiveness that's available to you because of Jesus and what he's done. But when we, as followers of Christ, act like we're better than everybody else, and we love to talk about how bad everything is, and boy, those Democrats, or boy, those Republicans. By the way, did you hear how you're talking? Those Democrats, those Republicans, that other side, those other people, those LGBTQ type, when you start talking about them in that way, you're acting like you're better. Learn from Daniel. Go to 1 Kings chapter 19. This might make you feel a little better if you've fallen into this type of a prayer. There was a prophet named Elijah who did. 1 Kings chapter 19. Listen to Elijah's prayer. This is after he's been used by God to defeat the prophets of Baal. Ahab told Jezebel, 1 Kings 19, verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more so also if I don't make your life as like one of them by this time tomorrow. 
Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he laid down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank. And he went to the, in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel, they have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. God says to him, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And uh, he said, I, in case you didn't hear me the first time, have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel. They have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. What didn't you hear the first time? The Lord said to him, now go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you will arrive, you'll anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Zael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Go with me to Romans chapter 11. We'll get a little more clarification on this story in Romans 11. Look at verse 1. Paul asked this question, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people, Israel? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Did you catch that? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what's God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Oh, by the way, so too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Listen closely, folks. Elijah fell into the pattern of thinking he was the only one who was living for God. That temptation is strong. That's why daily we have to lay our flesh on the altar, renew our minds, Allow the Spirit of God to speak to us, speak the truth to us. That's why it's valuable for us to keep short accounts with the Holy Spirit and allow Him to speak to us. And when He does speak to us, listen and do it. Because something happens to us when we get good 
at tuning out the Holy Spirit when He convicts us? It's called a hard heart. Years ago, when our kids were little, our kids all had a bathroom routine. Every time it was nighttime, they had a routine that they had to do. They're brushing their teeth and washing their face and putting on their pajamas and all that stuff. And it took a few minutes for them to do. But whenever it was bedtime, we'd say, hey, go begin your bathroom routine. And our son actually needed a little more help, so mom made him a little chart that he could look on his mirror. Have I done it all? And one night, when AJ was little, it was time for bed, and we sent him out of the living room where Becky and I were. We said, hey, go, go get ready for bed. And he took off, and he went to go do his bedroom routine and bathroom routine. And about an hour later, we realized he never came back out and said goodnight to kiss us. So I went to check on him, and he was sitting on the edge of his bed, fully clothed, reading a book. We had bad kids. We had real hard bad kids. <laughs> no, we've been blessed. But you have to realize a couple of things are going on at this time. God's teaching me about grace versus the law at this same time. At this point in my life, God's changing me as a father. I had been raised under the law. If you break the law, you get punished. But God had begun to teach me that it's not about the rules, it's about the heart. And so when normally I would have said, you disobeyed your mother and I, here comes the consequences. God said, I want you to use this opportunity to teach him something about his heart. So I sat down next to him and I said, AJ, let me ask you a quick question. You did hear us say, get ready for bed, didn't you? He goes, yeah. I go, um, so what happened? He said, well, I came in to do my bathroom routine, and I saw the book, and I thought, oh, I want to read a little bit. And I sat down, and I started reading, and I got distracted. I said, okay. So let me ask you another question, though. During the time that you were reading, did a thought ever cross your mind, I need to put this down and go do my bathroom routine? He said, yeah. I go, what did you do with that thought? He said, I pushed it away. I said, that's what I want to talk to you about. See, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit when he speaks to us and tells us what we should do. He does it lovingly, but he always shows us the way that we should go. But here's the thing. In little things like reading a book versus brushing your teeth, you think it's no big deal, I'll just push it away. But the Bible says the better you get at pushing the Holy Spirit away, the more you develop a hard heart. And then you get to a point where you can't hear God talk anymore. I said, I don't want you to get to that point. I want you to start practicing when you sense him speaking, listening. Folks, you all know full will. We all deal with that, don't we? People that ended up in adultery never intended to commit adultery. But they started tiptoeing down that road and they got real good when the Holy Spirit said, don't go to dinner by yourself with this coworker who's a lady when you're on the road. Don't send back the flirty text in response. But we get good at tuning out the Holy Spirit. We get, develop a hard heart. And even maybe get to the point that we deceive ourselves and think we're living righteously. And Elijah, it happened to Elijah, folks. And God said pretty much to him, get over yourself. There's 7,000 that still haven't bowed their knee to Baal. And I know who they are. I want to challenge you as we get closer to the return of Jesus. And Daniel's 70th week that's coming, we're going to study next week. Ask God to give you a soft heart. 
to soften your heart to who you really are. By the way, when he does, he's not going to beat you up. His correction is loving. His commands are not burdensome. When he points out your sin, it's because he loves you. It's for your best. Don't let Satan think, make you think God's mad at you. God hates you. God thinks you're a jerk. No, no, no. You don't get it. He loves you. And he wants you to enjoy his blessings and his grace. And he'll bless those who fear the Lord. Daniel's prayer was, we have sinned. Folks, let me ask you. Has America gotten to where America is because of living for self? Can we not agree? That would sum it up. America's gotten to where they are, and it's manifested itself in all sorts of ways where we can choose whatever we want. Have you, anybody here never lived for self? Exactly. The only difference is we've received the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ through faith in Christ. And we've been sealed. Our sins have been washed away. We're in a different category now of people that are children of God. But he's left us here to say to the people that are left, a judgment is coming. And I'm not going to be here for it. And I don't want you to be here for it either. Let's close tonight with James chapter 4. Listen to verses 6 through 12. Now, I'm going to ask you real quickly as you turn to James, was it written to the church or unbelievers? The church. Oh, man, it's really clearly written to the church. Talks in chapter 2 about how to treat the poor people when they come into our services and all that stuff. But in James chapter 4, we'll just start in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Obviously talking to believers. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Oh, don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? One thing that will help you in this journey of getting serious in these last days, and allowing Jesus to do in your life and through you what he wants to do, you take your eyes off of the world, take your eyes off of the U.S., take your eyes off of the people in the church around you. So many of us have lived their Christian life talking about church problems and church politics and church issues. And we think we're being good Christians because we care about the church. All the while, totally breaking 
God's word. Folks, stop talking about everybody else's stuff. And humble yourself and say, Lord, show me where I am. Because I want to make sure I am right with you. So that not I can go to heaven. I thank you that I'm already going to heaven. I want the full blessings that are available to me. By the way, I'm going to tell you, when it comes to the blessings of God, I'm greedy. You know why? He told me, store it up. Store up treasure in heaven. And I want the full blessing of God. And I want it for you as well. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.